Well, good morning. If, in fact, uh, you are uh, in Hortonville or here in Appleton, we have uh, James 5 today, which means maybe you forgot all about that, or maybe you still don't know what that is about. Bottom line is this. Anytime during the, the message, if you feel so compelled, you, you want someone to pray for you, just go on out these doors uh, into the uh, lobby, and there'll be some people there who will direct you to a couple of elders. If you are at Hortonville, you can get up and go in the back, and there'll be uh, some folk there who will as well direct you to some elders to, to have prayer. Um, however, let's get going. This is going to be a different message this morning, radically different, actually. Let's start off and say that you are a juror, and you have to pronounce judgment. The crime has been a homicide, and we've only got all of our evidence. We've only got two eyewitnesses. Now, these eyewitnesses were both standing next to each other. They both have 20-20 vision. There was, they were not impaired in any way, shape, or form, emotionally, mentally, physically. Their states were the exact same. The first is a woman, and she says that the defendant did, did in fact do it. She saw this person do it, and she describes in painstaking detail what this person did and how they took this individual's life. The second individual is a man, second eyewitness, and he says, oh, no, that's not at all what happened. I was right there as well. I saw it, and uh, the person did nothing wrong. Someone else did it. And so there you are scratching your head. You've got to make a decision. Two eyewitnesses right there. They've got radically different stories. What do you do? Well, let's stop for just a moment and look at the witnesses. The, the first one, uh, the gal, her name is Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa, as much as we've been able to tell, has never told a lie in her whole life. She's deeply committed to the truth. She would never misrepresent truth intentionally. Everybody we've talked to says that. She sacrificed her own life for justice. She knows she's going to stand before God one day regarding how she handles this. And so she's really committed to truth, so we think. Second person, the man, his name is Al Capone. Now, Al has been in prison for tax evasion. He's got a long checkered life of uh, destruction and deception and lying and, and, and death. And he is not committed to justice or truth or dignity of individuals in any way, shape, or form. Who are you going to believe? Now, is it possible that Mother Teresa got this one wrong and Al got it right? I, I suppose that's a possibility, theoretical possibility. Yes, probably so. So who are you going to, to believe? And here's the deal. The Bible is on trial. It's been on trial from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, Satan starts this whole ball rolling. Hath God said. And continuously, it has been under attack, even so to today. And you've got witnesses uh, coming strong and hard against it. What are you going to believe? This is what we want to start off with is because there may be some here who uh, believe that the Bible is the word of God. You need to recognize that you chose to believe that. And there are some here today who might say, uh, I believe the Bible is not the word of God. Okay, you have chosen to believe that as well. Uh, there might be some folk uh, here again who would say, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I've chosen that. I live my life accordingly. Another group would say, no, it's not, and I live my life accordingly. And then there's a third group that's really not a group, but we like to think it is because we like this middle circle. We all want to walk the middle, don't we? And this is the group that says, I don't know. 
Maybe it is, maybe not. I just don't know. But you need to realize, nobody really lives in that category, though we might think we do. Because sooner or later, something's going to happen in your life where you're brought to a crossroads, and the Bible's going to say one thing. And you're going to look at the one thing the Bible says and go, ah, it's kind of hard. And that's going to be costly and lonely and, and painful. And I don't know if I want to. And then you look at the other direction you can go. The, the one that the Bible says don't go. And you go, well, that looks a whole lot more comfortable. And there's a lot more folk down that road. And that looks like it's more fun. And it's going to be more lucrative. What do you do? You're going to have to do something. What you decide to do will determine. It will manifest what you really believe about the Word of God. Now, we've, that's why we've got to get this question down. We've got to deal with it. What, do we, what, what are we choosing to believe? The Bible is what it says it is or not. Very, very important. So our goal this morning is, is if you are here and you believe the Bible's the Word of God, I believe it is, I always have, but I'm not really sure why I believe that. Or if you are here and you say, no, it's not, but I can't tell you that I've actually ever really researched that, so I'm not really sure. Our goal this morning is we're going to give some information. I'm going to be fast and furious, so, so hang with me. Uh, just be a sponge this morning and soak this stuff up. There'll be some resources given out or uh, uh, recommended at the end of the message in case you want to go further with this. But if, in fact, you believe the Bible is the word of God, but you're not sure why, I trust that we will be able to put some things out there that might build your confidence today. If you are skeptical and you've already determined it's not, you got a free pass today because there's nothing I can say or anybody else can say that would actually be helpful for you. But if you are skeptical and you are open-minded enough to say maybe, uh, hopefully there'll be a couple of things you can think about and chew on before this is before this is done. Well, first of all, what does the Bible say it is? And again, you know, we could spend weeks on this one because there are 3,800 plus times in the Bible that it claims to be the Word of God. That's, I mean, that's, that's pretty huge. Uh, those are just a couple places. 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is. It's breathed out by God, it says. We go to Peter. He says, know this, that first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Some guy didn't sit down saying, I think I'll write some Bible today. That isn't the way it worked. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It claims to be a supernatural book. Psalm 119, 160 says that the sum of your word is truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said your word is truth. Now, those are some pretty radical claims. And on one level, we got to be skeptical of anything that makes those kind of claims. Are you sure? I mean, nothing else. The Internet has made all of us skeptical to an extent, and perhaps it's not necessarily a bad deal. But here, here's, here's one of the biggest arguments against scripture today that I've come across and perhaps you've heard this and it's and it's like okay let's just say that that's what it was when it was written but that was a long time ago and we had many 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 generations of oral transmission right of passing it down orally and then it was actually written and lots of room for things to go wrong and things to be said wrong so what we have today written probably doesn't really reflect the original very well at all 
Or some folk will say, well, yeah, it was written down. Um, but then it was copied and copied and copied and copied. And, copied. and all we've got are copies way over here. Lots of room, again, for, for people to have made a lot of errors. There's no way in the world we can be confident that what we have is actually uh, what they came up with originally. So that's a, those are significant issues. So get this. Kurt Eckenwald, and maybe you've seen this. Newsweek, December 23rd, 2014, his article, The Bible So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. You love the title of nothing else, right? He says, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical preacher. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. And neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies. And so on and on hundreds of of times. That's, that's kind of sobering. What, what do you make of that? Well, this is what we know. Let's go back to what we know. We know that Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. We know that because there were nine secular sources at the time who wrote about his crucifixion, 33 AD. We also know that the text of the Bible were originally written down between 50 and 60 Maybe John written as far as is 90. But the reason why we know that is because in 1947, the, probably the greatest archaeological find ever was discovered called the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found in these caves near the Dead Sea in Palestine um, thousands of scrolls of ancient documents dated anywhere from 200 B.C. to 70 A.D., and in it they found a portion of the Gospel of Mark that has been dated at 50 A.D., and Romans, and 1 Timothy, and 2 Peter, and James, and Acts as, as well. And so we know Jesus is crucified in 33, but the things are written down at somewhere around 50 to 60, perhaps earlier, but let's go 50 to 60, at least by then. That's a gap, though, so it's not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of oral transmission, but still 17 to 27 years of orally handing it down. That's still enough time, right, for things to go sideways and maybe for the story to change a little bit before they actually wrote it down. Let me ask you a question. September 11th, 2004, do you remember when the towers went down? You say, <laughs> no, September 11th, 2001, the towers went down, thank you. I say, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's right. The train towers in L.A. went down. And you go, well, wait, what are you talking about? It's the twin towers in New York City that went down. I said, oh, yeah, 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 I remember now. Yeah, some, some Girl Scouts, extremists, right, they were working on their nuclear bomb badge, and so they went and they got it and they blew up. You know, no, what are you, it's Islamic extremists, and they hijacked airplanes oh yeah 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 there was i bet there was i think there's ups plane and a fedex plane and you go, no. they were commercial airliners oh yeah yeah it's all coming back to me now right the twin towers new york city pentagon was it too right and the white house and the statue of liberty and you go no 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 white house was not hit statue of liberty was not hit we know what was it we remember that day 20 years, 21 years ago, 20 years is not enough time for the stories to evolve, especially when we know the story. These guys who wrote the Gospels, they wrote, most, most of the people uh, alive when they wrote it were people who were alive when Jesus was here. They wrote it directing it to Jerusalem where all these events happened. 
If they wrote something wrong, then certainly people would have been flagging it, saying, what are you talking about? That's not at all what, what happened. Now, sometimes we, we this, first of all, oral tradition, 17, 27 years, is not a big issue. But sometimes we, um, I think, badmouth oral tradition more than we ought. Uh, maybe you've heard this. I'm guessing you have this uh, in your memory. Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. You, you know this, right? You got this down for the most part. We all got this. Now, let me ask you, do you know when this was originally written down? Do you ever read it in the original? Do you know, 1791, a book, Mother Goose's Melodies or Sonnets for the Cradle. You ever read that? There might be somebody who has read it, 1791 edition, but most probably not. Most probably we know this because somebody taught us, just verbally taught us. Well, let me ask you, did your teacher read the 1791 edition? Well, probably not. Maybe, but probably not. Probably somebody taught them. And then your teacher's teacher, did they read it in the original? Well, probably not. Probably somebody taught them, and on and on and on, 230 years of, of oral transmission, of passing it down orally. I'm guessing that between the time the original came out and what we're reciting today, probably radical difference. Probably different names of people, different geography, different, different people getting hurt in different ways. I'm sure it's got to be radically different than what was originally written. But if you got the 1791 version of Mother Goose's Melodies, this is what you're going to read. Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Only difference, only difference is a spelling uh, difference in Jill's name. That's it. That's it. To, to think that oral tradition can't be trusted, I, I could, we could spend more time on this. If, let me give you, you ever play the game um, um, telephone? Remember this game? You play this in youth group. Someone says something over here, and then they whisper it and pass it down, and then you see what the real the message was at the end, and you see how different it was, and everybody laughs, and oh, they think that's the way the Bible worked. But what if we did this in here? What if we, we're not, we're not, but what if we did, what if we started right over here, and I gave you one sentence, and then we whispered it all the way and we passed it down. I don't think we'd get it done in time, but let's just say we could. And then we checked the very last person. And what if I told you this? If it's the exact same message, we all walk out of here with a million dollars cash. We would make sure that that message was right, wouldn't we? we wait, tell me again. What is it again? We would make sure that that message was right. Well, these guys... We're dealing with something that they considered much more valuable than a million dollars. This was the word of God to them. You know they passed it down in a correct way. Now, let me give you another uh, uh, diagram to help you understand a little bit. Maybe you got this down, but it's good, just a good reminder. I like this one. Let's say I'm the Apostle Paul, and I know that it's going to require major, major imagination. But let's just say I am, and God is going to come to me and speak to me, okay? Let's see this. We have me out there on the screen. There I am. And God is speaking to me, and he, he gives me his word. Got it, got it, got it, and I write it down. I, okay, I've got the word. And, but then I've got three children. And so I tell my children, children, this is the word of God. Oh, my goodness. And so we, we have devotions with this every morning. So we're opening and closing, opening and closing. We're going over this. We're going on a regular basis with my, with my three children. But now I'm starting to get old, and this thing is getting very old. 
And so I say, listen, children, I'm getting old, and this thing is starting to look ragged. We need to preserve the word of God, so y'all need to copy this down. And so they copy it down. And then they each have three children, and so they meet with their children. And they say, children, this is my dad, came from my dad, inspired by God. This is the word of God. Let's get on this down. And so they're giving quiet time on this day, morning, 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 morning. And they're opening and closing, opening and closing. It's wearing out. By the time their children get old, they come to them and say, children, I'm getting old. This text is getting old. We need to preserve it, though. So you better copy it down and make sure that it's safe. And so they do. And then their children have three children. And every morning, they're having quiet time with it. And they're opening and closing and opening and closing their document. And then they have children, on and on and on and on. Now, when you look at every one of these people have their own copy. But which one was inspired, right? The only one out of this whole group, the only one that was inspired by God was Apostle Paul. right, that, that very first one. It's the only one that was inspired. Here's the problem. We don't have that original one anymore. As a matter of fact, in, that, in this illustration, you can like draw a line across the top of it. That's dated 1450. That's the invention of the printing press because at that point, people quit copying these things by hand so much and it was subjected to mass production uniformity. All right. Lots of copies. And if you're going to trace back, you want to figure out what I said, though, what the original said how might you do that? Well, you're going to gather as many of these copies as you can probably and compare them to each other, look at it. And your goal will be you want to get down to as far down, as close to the original as you can. Don't you want to get the oldest one you possibly can? Because if you can get a copy of the original, okay, that's going to work well. So you want to get two things. Get as many of the manuscripts as you can and stare them down, compare them, and then get the oldest ones you can and see where they, where they differentiate, where they, where they re relate. And through all of this, this is your goal to get this is called textual criticism. And that's, that's folk do this for a living, believe it or not. Now, we don't have the originals of Scripture anymore. And that might freak you out a little bit, but just know this. We don't. Shakespeare wrote in 1600. I mean, that was not that long ago, really. We don't have a single couplet from Shakespeare's hand. Nothing. No original anything from Shakespeare. And that was in 1600. Can you imagine stuff written in 50? I mean, it was, things wear out, right? They don't work. And so when you take all the manuscripts from Scripture... And you compare it to what else we have in this world. Let's, let's, let me just show you a chart that kind of points this out. If you look at Pliny the Younger. Well, Pliny wrote A.D. 61. The earliest or the absolute oldest copy we have, right, was 850. That means he wrote over here. There's a 750-year gap between the time he wrote it and the earliest, the, the oldest copy we have. So a lot of stuff could go wrong in that 750 years of transmission, but you can only do what you can do, right? And there are only seven manuscripts. So a textual critic that wants to do plenty, he puts out the seven manuscripts, and he compares, and he knows he's got a big gap, but there's nothing he can do. Well, the same thing happens with Caesar's Gallic Wars. There's a 1,000-year gap there, but there's 10 manuscripts. Plato, there's a 1,200-year gap in seven manuscripts. Now, uh, Homer's Iliad, if you've had to read Homer, that's pretty good, right? He's doing well because there's a, only a 500-year gap there and 643 manuscripts. So those guys can scatter it out, compare them together. They get pretty close to what Homer really wrote. But look at the New Testament, will you? 
It's, it's, it was written, say, between 40 and 50 to 90, because we said John could have been written as far as late as 90. Uh, the earliest manuscript we have stated 130. That's about a 50-year gap. And there's 24,000-plus manuscripts. There's about 5,700 Greek manuscripts. And there's 10,000 Latin manuscripts. And there's 9,000 manuscripts in other languages. And this is really amazing stuff because Diocletian, the Roman emperor at this time, 303 to 311, uh, Diocletian demands, he requires, he puts out an edict. There is a Roman empire-wide ban and burning of all New Testament texts. So between 303 and 311, literally thousands of texts of the New Testament were burned. Can you imagine how many we might have today if that didn't happen? But even if we didn't have any manuscripts, and keep in mind, we only got like the seven of Plato. We've got 24,000 plus of the New Testament. But, but even if we didn't have any of those, this is interesting. We have an incredible amount of quotations from early church fathers. Now, let's, let's read this. This is a fascinating uh, quote from Daniel Wallace. He says, There is a wealth of material that is available for determining the wording of the original New Testament. Excuse me, the, the, is staggering. More than 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts as many as 20,000 versions and more than 1 million quotations by patristic writers. In comparison with the average ancient Greek author, the New Testament copies are well over 1,000 times more plentiful. If the average sized manuscript were two and one half inches thick, all of the copies of the works of an average Greek author would stack up to four feet high, while the copies of the New Testament would stack up to over a mile high. This is indeed an embarrassment of riches. God knows we need proof. Well, he's given it to us. Now, think about this. It's interesting. Because there were, uh, we're just going to talk, talk at three for just a second. Three preachers, early church. They were, they, they were from 95 to 115. You got Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp. A guy named Polycarp. Who names their kid Polycarp? But it's Polycarp, forget it. He was discipled by the apostle John. Apostle John sat down with Polycarp, right? So these three guys, early church fathers who were preaching. And we have copies of their sermons, many of them. And just these three guys preaching between 95 and 115, they quote from 25 of the 27 New Testament books. That's amazing stuff. That's ama- they, they quote them as authoritative, which means a couple of things to me. First of all, if they are quoting 25 of the 27 New Testament books before 100, right, then they are, are, these had to be written way before then because Clement is in Rome, Ignatius and Polycarp are in Asia Minor. There's hundreds of miles, different continents, major water between the two. It takes a while for these things to travel. And they're, they're preaching these, quoting them as if everybody knows. They're authoritative. 25 of the 27 books. If you look at the patristic fathers, early church fathers, preachers, between one, in the 100s and 200s, they quote the New Testament over 39,000 times. And if you just took their work, right? You just took their work. Forget, let's say we had the, the Diocletian one, and there are no, no manuscripts whatsoever. You just took these sermons from the early church fathers. You can put together, you can reconstruct an entire New Testament to save 11 verses. 
I mean, this is really amazing stuff. So when the textual critics sit down with Bible stuff, they're not looking at three or four uh, manuscripts that are a thousand years separated from what had happened. They are looking at thousands separated by just decades from what, from what happened. Amazing, amazing stuff. Now, you got a lot of copies, right? But... It's this typical world. It says every, this is a quote from Robert Funk uh, from the Jesus Seminar. He says, every careful copyist makes mistakes, as every proofreader knows. So we will never be able to claim certain knowledge of exactly what the original text of any biblical writing was. Is that true? We will really just never know, because we got copies but we don't have the original, and the copies just probably all made a lot of mistakes. So are there variants, they call those mistakes, are there variants in all those copies? 24,000 plus copies, yeah, there's some variants. They are. Let me share this with you, stay, stay with me. If you compared all the manuscripts of our New Testament together, 93% of our New Testament, there's absolutely no question. There's no question whatsoever. There's only 7% variants. And you go, okay, okay, but that's pretty huge still. 7% is pretty big. Well, at least 6% of that 7% is nothing more than things like uh, spellings. For example, you can spell John's name in Greek two different ways. Uh, it's nothing more than inverted word order. It's incredibly inconsequential, right? Let me give you an example. Matthew 27, verse 24. These are uh, wordings, actual manuscripts we have of Matthew 27, 24. Pontius Pilate, he's at the trial of Jesus. And in one of our manuscripts, it says, I am innocent of this man's blood. We get another manuscript. It says, I am innocent of this righteous blood. We have another manuscript that says, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. Now, What's, what you need to know is this is the type of variance. This is the only type of variance we have. We don't have anything that says, oh, yeah, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he wasn't God. There's nothing like that. There's nothing out there, no variant whatsoever that says he had a thing going on with Mary Magdalene, as has been alleged. There's no manuscript that says, oh, yeah, by the way, Judas was a good guy. Nothing like that at all. This is the only type of differences we find that we, we see. As a matter of fact, Daniel Wallace would go on to say, for more than two centuries, biblical scholars have declared that no essential affirmation of Christian doctrine has been affected by the variants. D.A. Carson, he says, what is at stake is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we have been commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variants. They're saying what we've been saying. The, the, the differences are inconsequential. Um, so you think this. Okay. So the Bible we've got is 99.5, it's been estimated, 99.5% to 100% uh, exactly what the original authors wrote. But what if the original authors made a mistake here? What if they really didn't, what, what if they, they said things, but what if what they said was not correct? Let me just blast this real quick, because we could spend a lot of time here, but here's, here's the issue. 
if you can't believe what the Bible says historically, something that can be verified, why in the world would you believe what it says spiritually, something that cannot be verified? Bible is easy enough to prove on this level because it's not just a set of ethics. It's not just a list of philosophical wranglings. The Bible happened in time and place, and they mentioned kings, and they mentioned worldwide events, and they mentioned plagues, and they mentioned all kinds of things that if you could just demonstrate they, they were wrong here, well, you know what? If they were wrong with something like that, perhaps they're wrong with, with spiritual things as well. Well, in Isaiah 20, verse 1, it says this. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, yada, yada, yada. But here's the deal. We happen to have some king's lists that were written by the Assyrians from this time. And Sargon's name is not on it. And so folk are thinking, well, hang on. I would guess that the Assyrians know their kings probably a little bit better than the Israelites do. This is obviously a mistake. And so it was held for quite some time to be a mistake. But then in 1840, I think it was 43, archaeologist by the name of Paul Gada, he was digging outside of Khorsabad, Iraq. And he found a palace city of an Assyrian king the king was so arrogant, he had his name imprinted on just about every brick of the city. Guess what his name was? It's Sargon. And as they went through his, his palace, they found a lot of his documents from his military escapades. One of them that looks almost exactly like the, the Isaiah passage where he went and fought against Ashdod as well. Um, Isaiah wrote in 700 B.C., Important to know, in chapter 44, verse 28, he writes this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, I, I, he wrote in 700 B.C., and when he wrote this, the folk had to think he was crazy, because what are you talking about, Isaiah? The, the city is thriving. What do you mean, Jerusalem be rebuilt? The temple, we use it every day. What are you talking about the, the foundations of the temple be laid? And who in the world is Cyrus, by the way? Well, in 586, about 120 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes through, and he levels Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple, and they burn the temple, and the gold in the temple melts between the bricks, and so his guys separate every single brick. They tear the temple completely apart in every way, uh, in 586. Well, in 536, so you're dealing, I don't know what, 150 years plus past Isaiah's prophecy, a Persian king comes on. Persia, they conquer the Babylonians. We've got this in secular history. They conquer the Babylonians. And then, um, well, his name is Cyrus, it just so happens. And, and we found this, I didn't find this, but this has been found in um, 1879. It is in the British Museum today. This is called Cyrus Cylinder. It was found in the ancient city of Babylon. Babylon. And what it says, this is the words of Cyrus, and he talks about how he conquered Babylon. And then he writes on here, fascinating, he writes his new policy of Babylon's exiled peoples. He will send them all back to their homelands so they can rebuild their temples to their gods. And sure enough, by Cyrus, Ezra 1, Cyrus's decree, that's what Israel did. 
in Second uh, Kings 3. If you read 2 Kings 3, it talks about a battle between the Israelites and the Moabites. And the Israelites were coming against the Moabites, and they were winning on this one. And they, they had taken a lot of Moabite land, and they surrounded the main Moabite city. And the king, Misha, the king of Moab, was in there recognizing he's about to get clobbered. And so what he did is he took his son up on the wall, and he sacrificed him as a burnt offering to his god, Chemish. That's what 2 Kings 3 says. And Israel sees this and says, we're out of here. They're done. Well, in 1868, a five-foot stone was found. It's called the Misha Steel or the Misha Stone, uh, written in Moabite dialect, dated this exact time. It's written by Misha, the king. And it's in the uh, Louvre, but they've got a copy at University of Chicago. You can go down there and see it for free. And you can read the translation right next to it. And if you read it, it sounds like you are reading 2 Kings 3. It talks about their battle with Israelites and how the Israelites were beating them. It calls the Israelite God Yahweh. And it says that at one point they were, they were about to get clobbered, but he sacrificed his child on the wall, and Chemish gave him a great victory. It sounds exactly like this. You know, it's fascinating. Let me just mention this. Norman Geisler said that while thousands of finds from the ancient world support in broad outline and often in detail the biblical picture, not one incontrovertible find has ever contradicted the Bible. Miller Burrow of, of Yale says this, on the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the excavations in Palestine. So you ask yourself, okay, can I trust the Bible? Well, here's the deal. If you can't trust the Bible, you cannot trust any work of, of ancient literature because you hold in your hands the most well-documented, the most reliable work of ancient literature the world has ever seen. Uh, there's been no archaeological historical evidence ever that would discredit the word of God. The, the Bible, if you got the Bible, you've got the very first book that came off the printing press. You got the book that has been the bestseller every single year, every single year since then, 600 years straight. You've got the book that's been translated into more languages than any other. Harry Potter translated into 80 languages. That's a lot of languages. Number two, though, Pinocchio, 300 languages. That's a lot. The Bible, 2,200 languages and portions of it into 1,600 more languages. There's a reason why that's so. Now, if, let me just toss this by you real quick. I'm going to fly on this one. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to rise from the dead. What did Jesus believe about this? Well, he quoted as authoritative from most every book of the Old Testament. He considered every section of it pointing to him. He asserted the entire Old Testament as unbreakable scripture. In John 10, he asserted that the Old Testament as a whole would never perish. Matthew 5, he personally authenticated persons and events. That means he talked about these, right? From Eden to Jonah, from Daniel to Noah, from Sodom's demise. Uh, he referred to the Old Testament as the, quote, word of God, Mark 7, as that which, quote, unquote, God said, Matthew 19, as, uh, quote, unquote, uttered that which was uttered by the Spirit, Matthew 22. Now, we have barely, just barely touched some of the evidences. We have not looked at the evidences for prophecy, really. We could look at manuscript evidence more, historical evidence more. We could look at the evidence of the eyewitnesses. We could look at evidence of changed lives and of the fruit of it. We could go on and on and on. But let me just mention this. 
if you are interested in a little bit more study about this, there's this little bitty book, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. I recommend it. Everybody read this. The whole, not just the whole church, everyone in Christendom should read this if you can read. And matter of fact, every skeptic should read this because you should know what you're, what you're choosing against, okay? Why I Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. You want something a little bit more meaty, something more intense? Okay, Reinventing Jesus. Um, and uh, we've got that up on the screen for you. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not a textbook, so it's not crazy, crazy difficult or anything. It's just got a lot more. He's got 75 pages of endnotes, incredibly well documented. I recommend these two. Now, if, let me throw this too. If you are a skeptic or if you are, you're, you're really trying to figure out the truth here. I, I've been studying the Bible a long time. And I know that there are passages in the Bible that are hard to understand. And I know, I know, I know there, and I could take them to you now. There are passages in the Bible that are emotionally very difficult to understand. I got it. I got it. And some that you might say, man, I don't, I don't see, I don't understand how this possibly could be. Got it, got it, got it. And we could spend a lot of time on those. But let me, let me just do this. Would you, would you, would I, I'm challenging you. Would you take the challenge to spend time just focusing on the life and the resurrection of Jesus? Because here's the bottom line. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you know what? Might as well just forget this whole thing, right? Just don't, don't waste your time because then it is really irrelevant. Josh McDowell, he was a philosophy student at University of Southern California when some Christians challenged him. He was mocking them. They challenged him to just study it out. You're into research. Josh just studied it out, and you come and convince us that he didn't rise from the dead. Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the uh, principal founders of the Harvard Law School, got tired of Christians talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He was going to prove them wrong, and he's going to take the laws of evidence and apply it to the resurrection and show them. Lee Strobel, who was an editor at the Chicago Tribune, Stanford grad, atheist. His wife became a Christian. It freaked him out. He decided he was going to research it, prove it wrong, so he could save his wife from this cult. Uh, Lee Strobel's a pastor today. All of these folk, when they did their research, when they did their research, every one of them surrendered their life to Christ because they realized, they realized the witnesses were so many and so credible that if you did the research, you couldn't not give your life to it. And so let me encourage you, again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, raised from the dead, this is the rest of its irrelevance. Let me encourage you, challenge you to go that, that route. Lots of material today. I know, I know. Lots and lots of, of, of stuff. Um, but if you start with these books, they've got a great bibliography as well. They can lead you to other places. Would you stand as we, as we pray and, and conclude our time this morning? Lord, thank you. We recognize that uh, we know so very little. We, we don't always recognize that. We think we know a lot more than we really do. But we're so grateful, God, that you know that we would demand proof, but and maybe rightfully so. And so you've given it over and over again. And yet it's so easy to listen to the voices who have the microphones and the media and the internet and not look out for the truth for ourselves. And so I pray, oh God, for your people here. First, I pray for those who might not really know you. 
God, they're wondering about your word. I pray, Father, with your Holy Spirit, would you lead them to whatever truth is? I pray that you'd lead them. That would be their prayer, and you'd direct them accordingly. And God, for those here who do know your word, they love it, but they're getting hammered. They're getting attacked in this world, even though they may never be able to convince otherwise. God, I pray that they would live in complete submission to you and your word in such a way that the folk would look at them and know that there's something there. Will you help us to be that even this week as we go into our respective worlds in the name of Christ and for his glory? Amen. Amen. You're just